message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville. For more information about Hope Church, please visit our website at hopeknox.com. We're going to start off in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-control, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church or God's church? He must, be a, uh, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may f- not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Um, in our culture, it seems like growing up, there are all kinds of heroes in, in our culture, and we all had the same idea of what a hero looks like, who a hero was. Um, oftentimes, there are sports figures, especially if you're a little kid. I think we all had uh, some type of jersey at some point, whether it be a basketball jersey or a football jersey. Um, growing up, one of my favorite players uh, that actually I saw a movie on, it kind of inspired it, was uh, Pete Maravich, Pistol Pete. Uh, he was before my time, but I got, I got into him because of uh, his uh, biography or documentary type movie about his life. And it really got me interested in him. But he was a real hero, something to admire. He did great things for his community. Um, he, uh, he was great at his sports. It wasn't just his, uh, his, his thoughts for the community, his hearts for the community. He was also, and, and not just his love for people, but he also had a natural ability. And I think you could say that with a lot of different players, uh, maybe your, your Babe Ruths, your Hank Aarons. But as we come into this day and age, it seems like slowly and sadly a lot of the heroes are, are disappearing from our culture. It's all sports are becoming all money-driven. And not to say money is wrong and not to say they shouldn't be paid. And um, You could discuss and debate whether their pay is too much or not enough, whatever that may be the case. But it seems that even with that, as, as the sport grows and the fandom of the sports grow, it seems like we're slowly losing heroes, people that you can say, um, hey, son, look, at, look to be like that kid. You know, um, I feel comfortable with my kid wearing his jersey because he's a great guy. One person, though, I think that does stand out in our culture um, in this, I'm not sure, and the reason I kind of brought this up is um, this past week, did y'all see what Peyton did with uh, the people in Chattanooga? Pretty amazing. Even if you're not a Peyton fan, I know there's Tom Brady haters in the world. Um, Peyton has done a lot for everywhere he's lived in Indiana, very close to where I went to school. Um, he started a hospital, created an entire hospital, and ran a hospital there. He's constantly doing stuff. Uh, this past week, he went to Chattanooga to do a fund to raise for money for the families who lost victims. Um, but things like that, he's constantly doing things in the public eye where um, he's not getting caught doing things illegal that he shouldn't do. He's not um, being a terrible role model, terrible example. Um, another good example in our culture today would be uh, Mr. Ricardo. Um, I always enjoy seeing him. He brings, he does, is it Big Brother that you're part of? Oh. Amen. And he mentors little kids, and I think that's a, uh, he brings one in particular. I'm not sure if he did more than one, but he uh, brings one to small group quite frequently. And it's encouraging to see, have men who are devoting their lives to others to, to lead and, and to, to give an example to others when they may not have that in, at home or wherever that may be. They, they set a model. They set an example. 
And as we're coming to this passage today, I think that's what we have here. This is a a passage where Paul's writing to Timothy. And he's writing to Timothy about selecting elders or pastors. It's the same word there. Um, And you may be wondering, why did Adam take a detour from this passage, or from our Acts and Genesis series, in order to talk about pastors? We already have a pastor. I don't plan on going anywhere. No one's talked about ousting me. We don't have a little mutiny to kick me out after the service. Why is he <laughs> that I know about yet? <laughs> um, why is he taking a detour to talk about this? And that is what our meeting is about afterwards. So the suspense, will, I'll give you a, a 24, the TV show cliffhanger as we go through this passage. But notice that Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a pastor. Church history tells us he was the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And he's writing to Timothy, telling him about selecting elders. And this is what he says he begins with. And you may think, before, before we get into this, you may be thinking, you know, um, I don't have a plan to be a pastor. I, I'm not, I don't really desire to be a pastor. What's this passage got to do with me? I, I don't have a desire. I don't know anyone. Um, you know, I'm, I've already got my career set. This passage doesn't really relate to me. And you may be quick to say, I'm just going to zone out for the rest of our time together. But let me tell you this. It has a great deal to do with you, even if you do not desire to be a pastor. Acts 20 and 28 And then Hebrews 13.7 says that a pastor has the responsibility of your soul, to care for your soul. So your life and your salvation and your spiritual relationship is very much tied to this man's job and this man's function. So I want to tell you, this very much does relate to you. This would be something we should care about. It's not something we should zone out. But also, it is significant for us because in other places we hear this. Hebrews 11 also tells us, or I'm sorry, Hebrews, uh, I believe it's 13.7, says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. So it tells you that you should look at your pastor, look at their life, the way that they speak to you, the way they live, and you should imitate their faith. You should, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And here, this is the same concept. When we go through these qualifications of a pastor, it is very important to us because this is the way that we should live. These are not qualifications just for a pastor. These are qualifications for all believers. All of these should be true in the life of a believer. But that's so much more for a pastor. So this does relate to you. This does impact your life. It involves your soul, your your salvation, your relationship with the Lord. But also, this passage tells us something about how you should live and how you should go about your life on a regular basis. Paul begins by saying this, The saying is trustworthy. Paul uses this phrase five times throughout his pastoral epistles. And... This phrase, basically, he begins even in this letter, and he says this in in 1 Timothy 1, he says, "...the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost." There he's talking about salvation. 
This, this idea of this saying is trustworthy, Paul's basically saying, you can bank on this. You can invest all your eggs into this basket. This is a true statement. There is nothing we need to worry. We can put our confidence in this. Bank on it. Then he says this, right after that. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Paul begins talking about the pastoral responsibilities and the pastoral role and says that the way that a person knows, begins to know that he's being called into ministry is desire. Does this man have a desire for these things? Don't Never neglect the fact that God changes our hearts and changes our desires. I can remember back... I used to work for a mission agency, and I had no plans in the future of uh, being full-term in, in the mission field. I had no plans of being a pastor. It was just a job that one of my friends taught me into doing when I was uh, right, out of call, or right out of high school. And one of my friends worked there, and I wanted to work with him, and it seemed fun, and we were doing stuff for the good of people. And it was something I got involved in. And I had no plans of pastoral ministry whatsoever. And then we, we were taking churches on the international mission field, and I met this, uh, this pastor, or this, this college guy. I was actually going to, to Boyce Bible College, the college I ended up going to. And um, he encouraged me to listen to a sermon by a guy. And uh, it was after hearing that sermon, I grew up in the South. My grandfather was a pastor as well. Um, and he was one of the screaming types that we talked about, uh, these type of pastors last night. The ones that have the handkerchief out and they're sweating. And by the end of the handkerchief is soaking wet. And they do the end uh, throughout his uh, whole sermon. It's very, you know, like screaming. And um, you have a two-hour altar call. We're going to play a couple more rounds just as I am. And that's how he was. And this is what I always grew up knowing being preaching. The man loved the Lord. And he was very faithful to the Lord. And I'm, I'm not critiquing his ministry. But um, never before, this is what I grew up in, but never before had I heard after listening to the sermon, he talked me into listening to it, and after I heard this man preach, I've never heard preaching done that way. I never heard a man go verse by verse through the Bible. And I never heard a man who really took the Bible seriously, something that really captivated his soul and, and changed his desires. And from that point on, I can really pinpoint to that time, I cannot remember wanting to do anything else. I think beforehand I wanted to be maybe a lawyer, or my mom was trying to say doctor, and then um, I loved arguing with people, so it was a lawyer seemed like a good, a good profession. But once I heard the sermon, my desires changed. The Lord changed my desires, and I couldn't see myself doing anything else. Nothing else would suffice. Everything else was secondary. The Lord changed my heart. And now I can't see myself doing anything else. And I knew I needed to be trained to preach like this man. I knew I needed to learn my Bible more because there was more to Scripture than what I knew even growing up in the church. Do you have a difficult decision that you have to make? you ever had any tough decisions in life that you have to make? I know as, as things go on, as possible you consider marriage, maybe you consider children, uh, you consider buying a home, uh, switching a job. We all have difficult decisions in our life to make. And the, way, the reason this is important and the reason we look to this passage and Paul instructs us here is what we can learn is that God can change our desires. It's not that desires are the end all. 
We shouldn't base all our decisions off desires. You know, we can oftentimes desire wrong things. But we should be praying when these difficult decisions come up. Lord, change my heart. Make my heart desire the right things. And I don't think Paul meant here, first of all, that it should only be based on desire. Not everyone who wants to be a pastor should be a pastor. I remember in high school, a funny story. Uh, there was this very, very, very large man that I was friends with in high school. Not large in height, but mainly in weight. I'm not making fun of him or anything, but he, he was not athletic at all. He even had asthma. And he once told me that uh, he felt like the Lord was calling him to join the basketball team and take him to a state championship. And um, needless to say, no one recognizes his athletic ability. And sometimes when you desire things and you think the Lord has given you desires, it's not always the right thing. We don't always desire the correct things. Uh, I believe it's Isaiah who even says, the heart's deceptive above all things. But, so we shouldn't base all our decisions. We shouldn't base everything on the heart and desires. But we also shouldn't neglect them. We shouldn't forget them or say they don't matter. Notice that Paul kind of creates a twofold fashion here for decision making. This person who wants to be a pastor, first he has to have the desire, but then here's going to be a great list where the church has to recognize this man's God-given ability. It's not that he desires and anyone who says they want to be a pastor, we throw them up here and try them out. No, the church recognizes his ability. The church looks at his life and sees qualities and qualifications in his life as well. It's not just desire, but the church is also very much tied to selecting a pastor. So when you make these decisions, think about your desires, but also get the advice and the counsel of others. Next, Paul says this, To the office, so those who desire the office of an overseer, he desires of a noble task. This word is the same word for bishop. Later on, Paul will say, um, he calls this person an elder. It's very clear what he has in mind here, and he constantly uses the words almost interchangeably. They're different words, but he almost uses them interchangeably. That is, we have two offices within the church. We have the office of a pastor and the office of a deacon. The deacon, the word deacon, literally means servant. And they are there to serve the church. But here what's interesting is, and the reason I bring this up, and I brought this up a little bit at the beginning of the service, is Paul's writing to a pastor about selecting pastors. If you already have one pastor, why have more than one pastor? Just so we know that this is not just a one-time occurrence. I'm going to read a couple of verses here for you. Titus 1, 5, and 6 is this. Paul's writing to, to Titus. He says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you may, uh, you may put what remained into order and appoint elders. There the word is plural, and every town as I had directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to charge of debauchery or insubordination. Paul then says in Philippians 1, 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ to the saints who are, the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers or elders or pastors and deacons. There it's plural again. First Peter 5. This is Peter writing. 
So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. We're told that Peter was an elder at the church of Jerusalem with James. They had more than one pastor. It's a plural This idea, the reason being is oftentimes when you get one man in the leadership, when there's not multiple men, there's a great deal of ministry that's needed to be done. And with that being said, you need more than one man to accomplish all the ministry that is being done. If one person is over the souls of a congregation, it often can be difficult. And that's why we need more than one person. We need accountability as well. And that's why they do this. It's accountability. It's building up one another up. It's challenging. It's for shepherding your soul. It's to make you more like Jesus. Now Paul goes into these qualifications. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. All too often we, people take this passage, and I think incorrectly, it doesn't mean necessarily that no one is going to have a charge against you or no one is going to... Um, Think incorrectly of you at times. Think about this. When Jesus goes and he, He's sharing the gospel and evangelizing with the drunkards and the sinners and people bring an accusation against Jesus, what are you doing there? Was Jesus not perfectly fulfilling this passage? He was above reproach. I think what Paul has in mind and what we have here is a list of qualifications, characteristics of the man's lifestyle. And what I mean by that is Jesus was living righteously among sinners. He was living above reproach. A pastor must live righteously. The focus is a lifestyle. Is he living above reproach? Is he living righteously? When you look at his life, you see a reflection of Jesus. Next, he says, he's the husband of one wife. There's been a lot of ink spilled on him this little section here. What's the husband and one wife mean? Does it mean that if he's single, he can't be a pastor? Does it mean if he's divorced, he can't be a pastor? Does it mean, uh, is he attacking polygamy? Some people say polygamy. Um, Some people, I mean, there's really a whole spectrum of discussions here. Usually the most prominent one and the one you'll see most in the South is he's accusing, he's discussing divorce. So much so that you've probably heard of Charles Stanley, a very popular pastor. Him and his wife got a divorce and just so he, he could see himself as still being qualified, he never wanted to remarry because he's the husband of one wife. They got a divorce, but he's never got remarried, so he's cool. Um, and that was the mindset. That was the, the, the thought behind this. But I, what I want to argue, and it's not to... Um, I usually will not go and show you the different points of view and um, spend a lot of time on that, but I want to try to show and what so we can get the thrust of what Paul is actually trying to say, what I think Paul is addressing here. I think Paul is trying to say, first of all, I don't think he's addressing divorce. Why don't I think he's addressing, uh, addressing a divorce? Well, first of all, if you take this section to be literal, I think you need to take the rest of the passage to be literal. Like, for example, he says that your children must be submissive. So if you say divorce is literal, then I think you have to say that he has to have children. If So if a man is unable to have children, he then wouldn't be qualified. Or if the man is single, he then wouldn't be qualified. Or in Titus, the same qualifications are given. And he says his children must be believers. So then if all his children are not believers, or at some point one of his children go wayward, I think you have to say then, 
that if we take this all literally, that he's not qualified to be a pastor. No one interprets those passages that way. They interpret this one small section literally, and the rest they treat as qualifications of a lifestyle. And what I want to argue is I think we should treat all of these as qualifications of a lifestyle. What do I mean by that? What I think Paul is saying is, the man who desires to be a pastor, he must be a one-woman man. He must. The focus is fidelity. That he's focused and loving his wife. So let's say before he was a believer, he got a divorce, and now this man is, is saved and he is faithful to his wife, and he's gotten married again and he's faithful to his wife, and they are living a Christ-centered life. I think there are some instances where a divorced person is qualified to be a pastor. I'm not saying that should be the norm, um, but what I'm saying is I don't think he's addressing divorce here. I don't have an agenda here with this either. There's nothing that I'm not divorced. I don't plan on being divorced. Um, But I'm just trying to be faithful to what Paul is saying. He's given us lifestyle characteristics. He's calling us to live a faithful life. The pastor must be a one-woman man. He must be focused on his wife. He must love his wife. His wife is the apple of his eye. Next he says, sober-minded. I don't think this is in reference to alcohol. He's going to address alcohol in a little bit. But sober-minded, he must be rational. You've got to remember that part of being a pastor, especially during this time, he has to address false teaching. Remember these are qualifications for us as well. We need to have sober minds. We need to be able to, to think through arguments. So when the unbeliever comes and brings us an argument and says, you know, I don't believe the Bible because of this or that, we need to be able to give a response to them, a defense of the faith. We need to be able to think through these things, rationalize, have arguments, loving arguments, sober-minded. He's able to think through these things. You also need sober-mindedness when you counsel others. You need to be able to think through what's going on in their life. And all the time whenever counseling issues come up is you see situations where people are like, this is going on and this is going on and this is going on. And really the heart of the issue is not these small little things on the outside. But we need to actually see that a lot of our issues are heart issues. That if you address the heart, all these other small bubbles on the outside, they're going to slowly start popping and disappearing away. Because the issue is the heart. And a man who's called to be a pastor needs to be able to, to listen to your arguments, to see through what you're saying in order to see that you have a heart issue that needs to be addressed. These are just implications, results. These are fruit from a bad heart or a heart that needs to repent and needs to change. This is why he needs to be sober-minded. He needs to be self... I'm not going to go through everyone he's individually, but... Know this, the list is not exhaustive. Paul's not saying once you met these, you're done. You know, this is, this is, he's giving a characteristics of righteous living. Self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. All the time when we think of hospitality, and we think of the word hospitable, we think of, of wives being hospitable and you invite people in your house. Usually it's associated with women. And I think that can be incorrect at times. Yes, women are called to be hospitable. The Proverbs 31 woman, she's very hospitable. She's doing incredible things. She's praised at the gates because of that. But also here we see 
pastors and, and, and believers, we're all called to be hospitable, inviting people into your homes. I can think of Bill, for example. I remember throughout the winter, there were two situations, or actually I can give you two examples. Once we were stuck at, when we lived at our other, our other house, we were stuck at the bottom of the hill in winter, and um, he was able to come and get us. He went out of his way. That's hospitality. He, it, he inconvenienced himself to bless this church and to bless me and my family. And another situation where my wife locked herself out of the house, and I was already here, and once again, Bill inconvenienced himself in order to serve our church and serve my family. And um, I can't thank him enough for things like that. He constantly goes above and beyond to show his love for our church and for our people. Um, that's what hospitality looks like. If you want to see what hospitality looks like, be like Bill. That's the best thing I can tell you. Next, he's able to teach. There's others I could say that about hospitality as well, but those are the first ones that come to mind. But able to teach. This is the only, the qualifications when you look in 1 Timothy 3 and then also you look in Titus. The qualifications for a deacon and the qualifications for a pastor, they're very similar. Uh, almost one for one. The only big distinction we have between the two is the pastor is able to teach. The reason I think this is important is the role of a deacon is for service and serving the church. It's for, for going out and, and helping others in the congregation. The way a deacon actually came about in Acts 6 is where the deacon originates. Well, the Apostle Paul and the Apostles are trying to do ministry. Well, they're getting all this money coming in, and they need to disperse the money to the widows and to the poor. And if Paul, basically all the money that was coming in, if they devoted all their time to, to taking care of those money issues, they wouldn't be able to do ministry and go out and share the gospel. So Paul appoints deacons. Your Bible may say servants. It's the same word. He appoints servants to take care of those things. Righteous men who are qualified to serve the church in that fashion. That's where deacon originates. But the difference between a deacon and a pastor is this ability to teach. It's not to say that your deacons do not have the ability to teach. It's not to say that they're not good teachers. But the pastor, this is a unique responsibility that is assigned to him. Next it says he's not a drunkard. He's not a slave or controlled by wine. It doesn't say that he doesn't drink alcohol. Jesus drank alcohol. He's not a slave to wine. I don't have a hidden agenda there as well. Don't worry. But all too often in the South, I think we're so impacted by prohibition that we think any form of alcohol is sinful. But I want to say that the marriage supper of the Lamb has alcohol. Jesus creates water to wine. There's alcohol there. Let's, let's be faithful to the text and not have hidden agendas behind those. And he says here, not to be a slave or controlled by wine. Moderation is the, is, the, is the focus here. Control. Next, he says, he's not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. So he's not an arguer, a fighter, something I constantly have to, to work on. Remember, these are lifestyle characters. It doesn't mean you're a perfect example. And when I read these, I'm, not, I'm constantly humbled when I start thinking of the role of a pastor. Um, because these things remind me of things I need to constantly work on. I think this one is probably the, the, this next part here, not, or not a lover of money, and then this part here is the, the most humbling, because you're constantly reminding and challenged by this. He must manage his own household well. I mean, that one will stab you in the heart over and over again, especially as your children are growing and 
Um, at times they don't do what you want, and you're like, I taught you better than this. And, you know, you, you wrestle with these thoughts, and you worry, how are my children going to turn out? And, you know, am I being too hard on them and being too soft on them? You, you think of uh, a different aspects like that as a parent. It's a, it's a very hard thing to wrestle with. Is he, is he the manager of his home? If we want to keep it with characteristics there. Is he, is he leading his home? And as believers, we need to take this into consideration. Why is it that Adam and Eve's sin is called Eve's sin? I mean, Adam's sin rather than Eve's. This is a small point to make that we could spend a whole day on, but why is it called Adam's sin when Eve was the first one to bite the apple? The answer to that question is, is because Adam has the responsibility to lead his household. He is the leader of the home. Man, I've said this before and I'll say it again. It's not an issue of are you going to be the leader of your family? Or are you the leader of your family? That's not a question. That's very clear in Scripture that you are the leader of your household. But the issue is are you a good leader? You cannot deny this. You cannot run from this. Adam did not leave Eve, did not lead Eve. He should have rebuked her and told her not to eat from the tree, but he did not. And that's why it's called his sin, because he is the leader of his family. Men, we're called to lead our families. Be a leader, a spiritual leader. Lead your wife, lead your children. Set the example, teach them. Notice this also. This is the reason Paul says to manage the household well. He says, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? It's like the greater to, or the less to greater argument. If he can't manage this, if he can't lead his home, how is he going to lead a church? It's the, the, the less the greater. If he can't do it with this small thing, how can he do it with this big thing? If he can't take responsibility over the souls and the, and the spiritual life of his own family, how is he going to do it with the church as a whole? Next, he must not be a recent convert or become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Think about this. This is kind of what Paul's getting at. When Jesus gave the parable of the seeds, he said this. He gives one illustration of a seed that's cast out on, on rocky soil, and it spurts up very quickly. And all of a sudden, the sun comes out, and it's scorched, and it dies. I think this is what Paul is, is calling us to run from. The people who may at a time for a short period of time, seem spiritually mature, but then all of a sudden, when the sun comes out, when hard difficulties come in life, they run from the Lord. I have a dear friend, I can actually say that's true of him, but we all probably have stories. When life gets hard, they run and flee from the Lord. Maybe a, a quick illustration with this. What, what's it mean? Well, why, why not a young convert? Why not a new convert? Um, when I had my second child, Isaiah, we went to the hospital and um, we had no problems uh, thus far or anything of that nature. All of a sudden, the doctor walks into our uh, hospital room before because um, she was being induced. And he comes in and, and looks at me and he says, uh, we have a brand new doctor here. It's going to be his first epidural and uh, we're going to advise him. We're going to have to ask you to leave the room. And um, it's like putting a needle on your spine. Like... It's not one of those things that you, you really want a new doctor. 
And I wanted to, and he asked me to leave the room, and I wanted to be like, "Are you crazy? Like, is this really a thing? Like, are you really asking me to leave?" And it, it honestly, it made me angry. Like, can we have another doctor? Um, can we have someone who actually knows what they're doing? Obviously, he went to school, but I'm not attacking him. But this guy's a new doctor. This is the first time he's ever done an epidural. Why do they have to pick my wife? You know, that was my thought. Pick the guy next door. Um, that was my initial reaction. And it's a reason being is because it makes you uncomfortable. A new convert makes you uncomfortable. You never know whether they've had time to think through issues that they should have thought through or they've been through real life difficulties. I think that's what oftentimes whenever you, you encounter a young pastor, a lot of older people will be like, you know, I don't want to talk to him. I can't really trust him. He hasn't really been tested and tried. He hasn't really went through life difficulties. He doesn't know anyone who's died. He's not watched his spouse die before his eyes. We want people who are not new, people who have experienced life difficulties, people who had struggled and made it through those struggles. That's in every aspect of life. That's no different than when we think about a pastor. Verse 7, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into the disgrace and the snare of the devil. Why does he need to be well thought of by outsiders? I brought this up last night in our small group when we were discussing, is that early in Christianity, especially in Judaism, there's this concept of when a king comes to an area and lays claim to an area, he would create a statue. And it was to be a reflection to them when people come up to the statue. They know this is Caesar's land. This is Caesar who controls this land. He is to be feared. He is in control. And when we come to this passage, it's no different. When we're created in the image of God, it's as if God sets a statue up of Himself, and it's a reflection to the world of God ruling and His reign over this entire area, over the whole world. His image is going into the whole part of the whole world until the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. And Christ's name is declared supreme. The reason I want to preach this passage and the reason I bring up this passage today to relieve the cliffhanger of many of you thinking that I'm getting ousted. Um, I know who you are. I'm joking. (laughs) Um, The reason I bring this up is I want to encourage you to prayerfully consider, and we're going to be talking about this and we're going to kick Jeremy out here soon. But Jeremy is someone I've known for a long time. Uh, We've heard him preach... um, he, uh, him, he and I went to school together. We were friends together up there. We lived life together up there for the longest time. Um, joked around together. Um, now we're united again. He's, uh, he's been to Bible college. He's been pastors at other churches as well. And I want to have a meeting where we discuss and prayerfully vote to have him come on with me as a pastor to help me shepherd your souls. And the reason we preach from this passage is because I see these qualifications in Jeremy. I see him as a man who's above reproach, a man who lives his life righteously, a man who desires for Christ's name to be declared and proclaimed throughout the whole earth, who cares about people. He stayed up uh, with Roy and I. We were just uh, having discussions uh, this past week uh, or two weeks ago, and we just stayed up and talked. Uh, maybe it was this past week. We stayed up and talked and just uh, counsel one another, just encourage one another. 
And um, I think he would be very good for our, our church to help us grow and mature. And with that being said, before we keep this focus on him, I want, um, I think Paul here makes the focus on the pastor. So um, before we do that, I want to ask you, are you living in such a way that we could say these things about you as well? Are you living in such a way that you're righteous, that you're above reproach, not a drunkard, slow to anger, hospitable, respectable, self-controlled, sober-minded, not quarrelsome, but gentle, not a lover of money? Are you managing your household well? These are all qualifications that should be like a knife to the heart to every single one of us. Are you living in such a way to reflect Christ? Remember, the whole, the whole aspect is we're taking the image of God to the nations. When sin came into the world, it distorted that image. Christ comes and He's bringing all things back under the rule of Christ. We're created new in Christ. The image of the invisible God is made flesh in Christ. And now we're all being made into that image. We're all called to be like Jesus. We're being made to look like Jesus. So when we go out into the world, these qualifications are qualifications of God. These are a reflection of God. And if you want to be like Jesus, if you want people to see Jesus in your life, you're going to look like these things. Are you reflecting these things? Are you being a mirror displaying to the world what Jesus looks like and what it looks like to have Christ rule your life as a church? Are we reflecting that Christ rules our congregation? Are we being a picture of heaven? Some of these things we need to repent of. We're going to go to a time of response and then go to the Lord's Supper and then we'll have our brief meeting. But I want to invite Olya up to come and play as we have a time of response.